and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And we'll begin in verse 1. Last week we spent our time looking at what we uh, coined to be the prospective church, oftentimes known as the universal church, that body of born-again believers from every place and in every time. Through Colossians 1, we learned that Jesus Christ is the head of the prospective church. We also learned about the structure of the prospective church as we considered John chapter 10, as we considered uh, Jesus Christ speaking of um, himself as the good shepherd and we as the sheep. Then we consider John 15, as Jesus Christ called himself the vine and we the branches. We recognize that uh, in, in, the, in perspective of the prospective church, there is simply Jesus Christ as our head and then us as believers. That there is no earthly mediator between God and man, save that man who was on earth and is now at the right hand of God, the man Christ Jesus. That we do not need any physical human man to mediate for us. We do not need a pope. We do not need a priest. We do not need a pastor to stand between us and God for we have been reconciled to God through the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. As we look into scriptures, however, we find that the church is not simply referenced in the singular sense. Paul and Peter and John, when they wrote in their epistles, often directed these epistles to the churches, not just the church. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas went about ordaining elders in every church, the scripture says. Paul testified in 1 Corinthians 4.17 that the things which he taught were to be taught in every church. Paul would later write to the, church of, to the, the churches of Galatia, and he says, to the churches which are scattered abroad in Galatia. And so there were numerous churches. John, in the final revelation of scripture, wrote the letter to the seven churches which were in Asia. And so this brings us to a place where we have a decision to make interpretively. We know that there is one church, a church. By that, I mean that every believer is part of the church. If you are a believer, you are brought into this body, this assembly that we call the prospective church. And every believer is part of this same church, which we often refer to as the body of Christ. However, we also recognize this idea of multiple churches. And though we cannot refute from the New Testament that there is one body of believers, we also cannot refute, we cannot get away from the idea of multiple local assemblies all throughout New Testament teaching. The Bible describes a scenario where every believer in Jesus Christ is part of a spiritual body, which is called the church, a called out assembly of Holy Spirit indwelled believers. But then it also describes a different but related scenario where these believers are collected into a local functioning body within which and through which they both learn and minister. 
And so last week, we focused on the prospective church. We talked about we as God's people, when we are saved, we are brought into the church, the body of Christ. We are made a member of this body. We are a born-again believer. We're part of the prospective church. This week, we're going to change our focus. So we're going to look at the other end. We're going to look at the separate but related teaching in regard to local church, in regard to why we meet together on any given Sunday, in regard to why we would come together and make it a priority in our lives to meet together. So I would like us to see that God has indeed ordained the local church specifically and fully intends that each man and woman be actively engaged in a local church body. And that's what I would like to show us this morning from the Word of God. We're going to have the same outline that we had last week. Last week we had three points. The first point was the head of the prospective church. The second point was the structure of the prospective church. The final point was the fellowship of the prospective church. We are going to take those exact same three points and look at them in light of the local church today through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. So let's begin by looking at the head of the local church, verses 1 through 10. As we begin in Ephesians 4, we find that there is no headship difference between the prospective church and its local church application. The head of the prospective church is Christ. We said that last week. Jesus Christ's teaching and character are the standard by which each individual, as a part of the prospective church, lives his life. We live our lives to conform our lives to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The prospective church is the body of Christ. As a member of that, our head is Christ. Just so, Jesus Christ is also the exclusive head of the local church. As the church operates, God's intent for the local church is that it would be a reflection of the larger heavenly counterpart. So, to that end, Jesus Christ's teaching and character are also the standard by which we, as a local body of believers, aspire to. Jesus Christ's person and work is what we are attempting to build ourselves unto. Let's take a look at how Paul presents this in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We see immediately as we step into this teaching this morning that Paul makes mention of the unity that is found in the body of of Christ. There is one body. He says that there is one Lord, only one master. He says that there is one faith. There is only one body of truth that we all follow. There is only one baptism. Speaking here of spiritual baptism, not physical water baptism. There is only one Holy Spirit baptism. There is only one God and Father of us all. There is only one object of our worship, and that is God the Father. And so, in Christ, we are all unified in that regard. Look with me now in verses 7 and 8. He says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And we see here, in between verses 6 and 7, that there's an adversative. That word, but. So there's a contrast between that which Paul has said and that which he is now saying. And he says, though we have 
this exceeding unity in the body of Christ and our one head, Jesus Christ, yet there are some differences among us. And he says in verse 7, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So each one of us as a Holy Spirit indwelled believer have been given spiritual gifts that have been designed for the benefit of the body of Christ. It has been designed for the benefit of the whole. Now, we'll come back to this a little bit as we get to our third point. So we see that Jesus Christ is still the standard. He is still the authority by which the local church operates. There is, however, there are various distinctions between the local church and the prospective church. An individual relationship with Jesus Christ is essential in that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the exclusive means by which a person receives salvation and becomes a child of God. But if there's one thing that becomes very evident as we look at the world around us, as we look at human nature, as we look at how things operate, it is that the effectiveness of one man pales in comparison to the effectiveness of a group of men. No man can do everything. No man has time, much less ability to be good at everything. That's why... There are 11 men on a football team on the field at any given time. There are even more men than that on a football team. But there are 11 men on the field at any given time because the man that is throwing the ball is doing what he's doing because he's very good at it. He may not run the ball very well. He may not catch the ball very well. He may not kick the ball very well, but that's okay because he's not paid to run the ball to catch the ball or kick the ball. He's paid to throw the ball to make some decisions. Now there is a man that's paid to run the ball and he's paid to run the ball because he's shown that he can do it very well. Now it may be that the man that throws the ball is also capable of running the ball. He may be very fast, but there's a whole lot more to running the ball than simply being fast. There's a whole different mindset when you're running the ball than there is when you're throwing the ball. And so we see that the group of men together is far more effective than any one of their individual abilities. So too, God has saved you. You stand before God, accountable before God. You serve before God. The standards you set in your life are between you and God. These things are you and God. And yet, God has ordained that the body of believers be a collective group that is working together through the various gifts that God has given to them to accomplish his purpose upon this earth. God brings men and women of various abilities, various burdens, and various perspectives together. And then he brings leadership, which is capable of pointing all of those talents, all of those abilities and all of those perspectives in a meaningful direction for the benefit of the whole, for the glory of God, and for the growth of his kingdom. And so while, yes, Jesus Christ is the head of the prospective church, Jesus Christ is the head of the local church, yet we recognize through verses 7 and 8 that there are varying gifts, that there are varying abilities, that there are varying, varying callings, you have gifts that your pastor doesn't have. Your pastor has gifts that you don't have. We can't 
do what God has called us to do alone. So we see that Jesus Christ is the head of the local church. Second point, let's look at the structure of the local church. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In verse 11, we see the structure of the local church. As we recall from last week, God has placed no hierarchy within the prospective church. You and God. God is the shepherd. You are the sheep. God is the vine. You are the branches. This is what we're talking about when we talk about that. The individual relationship between you and God. Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. Culture, language, gender, social class do not play in to salvation. They do not play in to your relationship with Jesus Christ. The local church is not, however, about one man and his relationship to Christ as much as it is about a corporate body of believers and their desire to grow in Christ together. Christ is still the head, but now it is a group of men serving God together instead of an individual serving God singularly. Where there are groups of people, then there must be Direction. There must be leadership. You cannot have groups of people that are coming together to accomplish a single goal without leadership. And so Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 gives us the leadership of the local body of believers. He begins with the role of the apostles and prophets. These are functions that were exclusively foundational to the local church, not operational. Please turn with me to Ephesians 2. Just maybe a page back, maybe not even. It's actually on the same page for me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. These are the verses that we've been memorizing in the mornings. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You notice there that the apostles and prophets are labeled as the foundation. They are labeled as the foundation. Jesus Christ was the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone that you would set in place. It would have, you would make sure that it had that perfect 90 degree angle, that it was set exactly where you wanted it, on the corner of the building, at the right angle, so that every stone you put in place after it would be at the appropriate angle. If the cornerstone was off, then the whole building would be off. If the cornerstone was not square, then, you're, then everything would, be, would, would, would not be square. And so the cornerstone is the most essential piece to any building. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, the cornerstone of the church. He is that stone, perfect, and so he then can become the standard by which everything else is measured. Then we had the foundation laid, and that foundation is labeled as the apostles and the prophets. By this, the meaning is the word of God, the inspired word of God, the scriptures. The apostles and prophets were those that God used through his Holy Spirit to pen the words of the scriptures. And so the word of God is built upon 
the character and the person of Jesus Christ. It is entirely and perfectly in line with the character and nature of Jesus Christ. If it's in the Word of God, then it's in Jesus Christ. If it's in Jesus Christ, then it's presented in the Word of God. They are one and the same. They are entirely, uh, they have in, in complete continuity. Complete continuity. And so that is our foundation says that we are built upon he gave some apostles some prophets that's the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and then he says and some evangelists and some pastor teachers now as we as we continue in the epistles we see that these are the two offices of the church as it were these are the two uh, callings that God has given that have been perpetuated now, we would say that the offices of the local church are the pastor and deacon because the evangelist is not so much tied to the local church as much as he is tied to the bearing of the good news to other people. And that is the first office we see, the office of the evangelist. The word in the Greek there literally means the bringer or the bearer of good tidings. This was a man who God has called specifically toward taking the gospel and bringing it to the ears of those who need to hear it taking the gospel to people, going to people, bearing the good news to people. This category, as I understand it, would comprise both the modern-day evangelist who travels from church to church preaching, as well as the modern-day missionary who travels, uh, well, it doesn't really matter where he travels, but who travels to other people groups and plants churches and sets up ministries and sees people one to Christ. And so that is as best I can tell right now, how I would um, interpret the evangelist as covering both the evangelist and the missionary in today's world because they both do the same thing. They are both tasked by God with taking the good news of Jesus Christ and delivering it to people. The second category that is mentioned, the fourth in this verse, the second that we see that we, we can see perpetuated through the New Testament is the office of the pastor-teacher. Now you say, pastor, as I look at my Bible, it says pastors and teachers. Isn't that two different offices? Well, no, it's not. Uh, this is well reflected in the King James in that there is no comma between pastor and teacher where there is a comma between, as a matter of fact, there's a semicolon between every other office. It's also reflected very clearly in the Greek that the pastor and the teacher are viewed in the Greek, uh, the way the Greek comes across, as well as how it was translated in the King James Bible, I'm not sure about other translations, it's viewed as one office, one function. The idea being that this man is supposed to be capable both of shepherding the flock, as well as capable of teaching that flock. They are intended to guide the flock, but also gifted specifically with the ability of leading believers into a vibrant understanding of, of the scriptures and into a strong Christian lifestyle and testimony. Now, I would also like to mention here before we move on that the scriptures do regard, it would seem, the bishop, elder, and pastor as one office. It does not necessarily regard them as different. It regards them as one office. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is exhorting the church and he says this in verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort 
who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. As we look at the command in those two verses, we see that Peter is commanding this to the elders that are among these churches. And then he gives them commands. And he says, first, feed the flock of God. Well, the word elder there is the word presbyteros, the word that we would say is elder. When he says feed the flock of God, the word in the Greek he uses there is poimain. That is the word for pastor in the New Testament. It's the word shepherd. It's the word that's translated pastor. He says, feed or shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. And then he says, taking the oversight. That is the word episkopos, from which we get the word bishop. And so here we see the elders being commanded to both pastor and bishop the flock of God. And from that, we can interpret that the elder, the bishop, and the pastor are seen in the word of God as the same office, as, as one function. That the pastor is to be the elder, is to be the overseer of the church. And so that's why we're not uh, engaged in a, a, a heavy hierarchy or echelon in this church, because we would interpret them to be one office. You may turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Here we see the contrast between God's plan through the prospective church, which is that we would all come to the unity of faith in heaven, and God's plan through the local church. The prospective church is a spiritual group made up of men, women, and children, most of whom will never meet one another, most of whom will never serve with one another, most of whom will never exhort one another, hold one another accountable, or anything of the sort. You are members of the prospective church with people in China, in Africa, in Russia, and throughout all the world. There can be no physical leadership of such a group for language, distance, and culture preclude that sort of structure and God has never ordained there to be a one world church structure in this age. That is not ordained in scripture. We cannot find it in scripture. But the local church is very different. Within the teaching on the local church, we see men and women who are near together men and women who are mostly speaking the same language, who mostly have the same culture, banding together to do God's work in a specific area. For this application, God has ordained the local church and God has ordained men to lead as well as to teach in those local assemblies. Thus, we have the pastor as the earthly leader of the local church. Now, the pastor is not the head of the church. He is not the head of the local church. His authority is not in himself. His authority is only an extension of the responsibility that he has to teach the word of God. It is only an extension of the responsibilities that God's word has given him to fulfill. I have no authority over your personal spiritual life. You don't come to me to confess your sins. You go to God to confess your sins. You don't come to me to set your personal standards. You go to God to set your personal standards. You don't come to me to have a right relationship with God. You go to God to have a right relationship with God. I am here to have oversight over the church, 
to direct the church, to lead us in ministry, to teach you the word of God. As George Mueller would say, he said it this way. He said, there are few people that have the grace to sit down and study for hours on end. So we as pastors have the opportunity, because God has given us that grace, to do so and then to reflect the fruit of our study to our people so that you can receive the benefit of the Word of God while you may not have the grace to sit in front of a book for hours and pour over the Word of God. God has given me that grace. And so God has ordained me to do for you what perhaps you don't have the grace to do yourself. But God has given you other graces. God has given you graces that He has not given me. So you need me and I need you. This is the local church. This is why we come together. Because I need you. And you need me. And Buffalo needs us. Buffalo doesn't need me. Buffalo doesn't need you. Buffalo needs us. Because as a whole, we can do the work of God much more effectively than we can do as individuals. Are you saying, Pastor, there's no place for individual ministry? No. Invite your neighbors over. Give them the gospel. They might, they, they, they might respond, get saved. I'm not saying that, that the, the church doesn't need you to be an individual. But what I'm saying is God has ordained the local church. Now, what are the pastor's limitations? We talked about them in 1 Peter already. Verses 2 and 3 say this. This is the charge that Peter gives to the, the elders. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, he says, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples of the flock, to the flock, excuse me. It is the pastor's duty to oversee the operations and the education of the flock. It is not the pastor's prerogative to demand obedience of any person, not of a king, not of a governor, not of an individual. The flock is intended to place themselves willingly under the authority of the pastor. I lead not by constraint, but willingly. You submit yourself to my teaching, not by constraint, but willingly. Just as people are not compelled to place themselves under the authority of any spiritual leader, so too a man is not compelled into the pastorate by any earthly motivation. I am not intended or supposed to be compelled by the desire for filthy lucre, the desire for money, or the desire for power to be behind this pulpit. If my desire is money or power, then I'm in the wrong. Then I am doing it wrong. Pastors are not dictators over the flock. They are servant leaders. We are not charged with leading the flock as we deem best. We are charged to, be, to call you to follow me as I follow Christ. That is my calling. Not to be lords over God's heritage, but to be an example. That word means example to the flock. I lead you by example. And I ask you to follow me as I follow Christ. As Paul asked the Corinthian church to do in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. So the head of the church, head of the local church, is Christ. The structure of the local church, we see foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then we see build it upon that evangelist, pastor, teacher. Finally, let's look together at the fellowship of the local church. The fellowship of the local church in verses 12 through 16. 
We'll begin in verse 11 for context. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. It's quite a statement. And that's the purpose of the local church, the fellowship that we share together. As we continue in verse 12, note with me the end goal of the evangelist and the pastor teacher, as well as the end goal of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is for the perfecting of the saints. Now, biblical perfection is not sinlessness. It's the idea of completion. It's the idea of living temperate and sincere lives of piety and virtue. The point of the pastor the teacher, the point of, of the evangelist, the point of the apostles and prophets was that the saints, the men and women who are born again and dwelled with the Holy Spirit could be perfected, could be completed. Now, this is an idea that we see here of personal growth. It is not something that happens immediately. It is not something that happens the day you're saved. You're not, you are not, the, salvation is not the end goal. It's only the beginning. There is an entire life of growth that must take place after salvation. It's about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, the perfecting of the saints. And it says the perfecting of the saints for a reason. Notice it says the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, this is not two statements here. This is one statement. The perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not saying that the pastor teacher is there to perfect the saints and to do the work of the ministry. The, in the Greek, it's very clear. And in the English... There's a comma there, unfortunately, but we can still glean this, that the, the, the translation is that the pastor and the teacher and the evangelist exist for perfecting the saints unto the work of the ministry, for perfecting of the saints to do the work of the ministry. And let me make this very clear. You do not pay me as your pastor to evangelize for you. You do not pay me as your pastor to disciple for you to rebuke for you, to exhort for you. You pay me to put the time and the effort necessary into studying the Word of God to reflect it to you and to teach you. It is our job as believers and members of the church to do the work of the ministry. And God has equipped us to do so. As we learn the Word of God from the pulpit, it is our duty to take the Word of God and to tell others. It is our duty to take the Word of God and edify one another. And that's the next point. For the edifying of the body of Christ. It is our duty to edify one another. It is our duty to find those in need in the church and to build them up. That's what, literally what that word means. Edify means to build up, to help grow, to, to erect, to bring together. It is our duty to meet one another, with one another, to grow in Christ. It is our duty to rebuke one another in love. It is our duty to exhort one another. This is our duty as a church. And I say our, because I too am a believer. 
As a pastor, it's my duty to teach you. As a believer, it's my duty to do the work of the ministry and to edify one another. You are not a pastor. God has not called you unto that grace. But He has still called you by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit to do the work of the ministry and to edify one another in love. This is the fellowship of the local church. God has called us to meet together because it is only when we are meeting together that we can do the work of the ministry and edify one another in love. You can't be edifying one another if you don't have a one another to edify. If there is no one another, then where's the edification? Where's the rebuke? Where's the exhortation? Where's the accountability? It must be there in our Christian lives. And God has ordained the local church to be the means by which that happens. And it is our duty to do this to help grow one another, the scriptures say, until the day that we are finally unified and complete in Christ. Until the day when Jesus takes us all home and we will all stand together, the church triumphant. But until that day, it is our duty to do the work of the ministry and to exhort one another, to help each other become perfected, to help one another become fitly framed, to help sand off the edges, to help see each other's blind spots. Do you know you have blind spots? Do you know you have areas of your life that you don't see a problem, but other people do? And if we aren't stepping out in love, the truth in love, as we see here, and is the motto of our church, in fact, exhorting one another, edifying one another, a man could go for months or years or decades with that same blind spot because no one had enough love to tell him that he had a problem. Because no one had enough love to tell him this is where you could improve. But you see, if we're all just acquaintances, it's going to be very difficult for us to do that, is it not? But if we are a body of Christ, if we are a local church, if we are serving one another, then we can do that. Then we can be that for one another. Then we can be what God has ordained us to be for one another. And why is it our duty to do this? Verse 14. So that we aren't like children being tossed to and fro with every wave of doctrine, but rather we are strong, stable believers. You know, there's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things. You hear some things. I hear some things. You hear one interpretation. You hear another interpretation. What is it that can stabilize us in Christ? God says it's the local church. The local church is what stabilizes us so that we're not, verse 14, tossed to and fro like children, carried away with every wind of doctrine, carried away by the craftiness of men. Where is our buffer from that? It's here. It's right here. How? Verse 15, by speaking the truth in love. By speaking the truth in love. There is no love in lying to a person to make them feel good about themselves. There is no love in allowing a person to go down a path of false doctrine. That's not love. There is no love in allowing a person to, to stay confused about his Christian life when you have clarity. See, the truth in love is us exhorting, 
edifying, helping one another along in this Christian life. Because what we can't do in ourselves, we can do through Christ as a body. And God has ordained it. How more? Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. By each of us taking the various abilities that we have been given and using them to accomplish the work of the ministry and by using them to edify one another in love. Paul uses a body example here. The idea of every joint being compacted together. And it says that it's the whole body being joined and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Could you imagine if every single joint in your body was a knuckle? If every single joint in your body was a knuckle, you'd have a hard time doing anything. If every single joint in your body was the same, there would be severe problems. God has not called us to be clones. God has called us to be what He has graced us to be. And our unity is not found in the way we look, or the way we talk, or our demeanor. It's found in our direction, which is unto Christ. That's where our unity is found. But notice that we need more than just knuckles in this church. We need a body of believers so that we can have every member, every joint. And as we are all working together, by that which every joint supplieth, we will become what we need to be in Christ. It never ceases to amaze me how God has gifted various people with the ability to pray for long periods of time with the ability to encourage even in situations that seem like there is nothing good they can come up and encourage your heart people's ability to organize people's ability to plan people's ability to envision these are gifts and your pastor hasn't been given them all people's musical abilities it's a gift. And your pastor hasn't been given a whole lot of it. We need other people to become a part of the body of Christ so that we can be as a whole what we can't be as individuals. That is God's plan. And this brings us to a point of decision. To a point of, let's say, a point of meditation. A point of, and I don't mean transcendental meditation, a point of thought. Point of thought. I guess I should probably be pretty careful with that word, meditation. It brings us to a point of thought. You know, over the past six months, we as leadership, Mike and I, have been making a, a concerted effort to encourage you to invite one another over, to fellowship with one another regularly, to plan it into your schedule. And the reason why we've done that is because it's an opportunity for us to become the body, to be what God has called us to be. We come and we meet together and we fellowship together. But the ministry doesn't as much happen here as much as it is prepared for here. The ministry happens as we go out and serve and obey both one, serving one another and evangelizing and such. Here you're prepared. Here we come together, we meet together, and then we go out. 
In the summers, we go out weekly knocking doors. More recently, I've been encouraging families to take some other steps of um, discipleship in order that we might be growing together. Now, the reason why um, we have done this and the reason why we are now forming a local church wherein we'll have membership and these sorts of things, it's not for me to feel better about myself so I can look down the membership role and tell people how many members we have in our church. It's not so that we can have more stability and I can be sure to get a paycheck every month. It's not so that I can have more people to have authority over or anything like that. The reason why we are attempting to band together as a church is because this church needs men and women to do the work of the ministry, to edify one another in love, if we're ever to accomplish God's purpose through this church in Buffalo and the surrounding area. If we are ever going to have a city of strong, grounded, discipled believers, we need men and women that are dedicated to that cause. So can you see why the local church is so important? Can we see why the whole idea of coming, eating, and leaving, coming, getting what you can get, and then getting out of here is not a biblical model of attending a local church? Can you see why the local church is meant to be something that you are engaging your life in, engaging your activity in, engaging your efforts in, engaging every part of what you are in? Now, we as a church are not attempting to intimidate people or confuse people or even asking you to go beyond what you feel is, is best for you as we're asking you to become a member of this church or as we're asking you to consider membership in this church. But I think it's very clear from Scripture what God has intended and what God intends is for you to find a place where you can pour your life, pour your heart, invest who you are. Now, we know with any amount of love and investment always comes vulnerability. When I would counsel young people when I was at college and, and some of the younger college students as I was in seminary actually would come up to me and ask me about a relationship and such and uh, talking about those uh, sorts of things and, and uh, marriage and engagement. and I would, I would tell them this quite often. I'd say that love is never without the danger of heartache. When we invest in someone, we are making ourselves vulnerable to them. By its very nature, love comes with vulnerability because we are placing our trust in them. Now, we are all human, which means we all make mistakes, which means when we invest in someone, there are times of pain and of sorrow and of difficulty because we're investing in something that is just as sinful as we are. That's why the love of Christ is so wonderful, because the love of Christ is perfect, because there is no vulnerability when we, when we love God. And when God pours his love upon us, we never have to fear that God will fail us. We never have to fear that God will disappoint us because his love is perfect. So I understand that with church membership comes vulnerability. I'm aware of that and I, I feel that with you. But can you see that God has ordained something here? 
that God has established something, that God desires something from us in a corporate sense, that God desires us to come together to do the work of the ministry, to edify one another, that God has, has designed this. Now, I'm not saying, nor will I ever say, that Legacy Baptist Church is perfect. And your pastor will never, ever come anywhere near perfect. But if we're heading in, in, a, in a direction, and if that direction is Christ, if we're heading toward this book, if we're keeping our eyes on this book, if this book is our standard, then we're not going to stray too far. And with humility, those times of vulnerability and those times of disappointment will become times of great joy as there's reconciliation, as there's selflessness. That's what the Scriptures reflect. And that's what this church desires to be. As we close, I'm going to leave you with those thoughts. We have not yet become everything that perhaps we could be as a church. There are still some things that are up in the air. We're still trying to make statements as to who we are, what we are, why we are, clear to everyone. We're trying to become unified in that regard. But today I hope you saw a little bit of the heart of this pastor for what could happen here. And I hope you saw through the scriptures exactly what God would desire of you. Not just in an individual sense, your relationship with God, but in a corporate sense, our ability to serve God together.